Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and welcome to this Money Talk special. Coming up on the programme, with New Year's resolutions in the air for businesses around the world, we'll be digging into the world of reorganisation from prizes. Reorganisations, if done right, are a very good way to unlock value in an organisation. To pitfalls. Where it's going well, you see the fruits. Where it kind of drags on, people are depressed and you can't spot a difference, then you know it hasn't gone so well. And that's what we're saying you should avoid. You should only reorganise if you're very, very clear what the purpose of the reorganisation is. In today's business environment, systems and practices can be lovingly designed and still last no time at all before becoming obsolete. But as the Roman writer Petronius put it rather long ago, we tend to meet any new situation by reorganising, but what a method it can be for creating the illusion of progress while producing confusion, inefficiency and demoralisation. So how can we reorganise businesses without the confusion and the inefficiency setting in? And how can business people talk about job losses without sending their entire staff into a panic? And how can upheaval and cynicism be kept to a minimum while we get to the core of a company's problem? My guests think they have the answer. They're Stephen Hedari Robinson and Suzanne Haywood, authors of Reorg, How to Get It Right – and they've developed their ideas while working on reorganisations for the consultancy McKinsey. In the interest of full disclosure, Suzanne is now a member of the board at The Economist Group. Hello to both of you. Hi. Hi there. So, first of all, why are reorganisations so important? And why, despite their significance in corporate life, do so many people conspire to get them wrong? Suzanne. Reorganisations, if done right, are a very good way to unlock value in an organisation. As probably many of your listeners will know, if you sit in an organisation which is not organised very well, where it's not clear what the accountabilities within the organisation are, if the processes don't work very well, if the culture's not functioning very well, it's very hard to get things done day to day. And organisations can really slow down. It can become extremely hard to get decisions made. So there's lots of good reasons to do reorganisations. The issue is that many of them go wrong. We've done quite a big survey of organisation reorganisations that have happened and we found that about 80% of them failed to deliver the value that people expect them to deliver when they set out. And that really was why we decided to sit down and try to write some of the learnings that we've had from doing a large number of these during our time at McKinsey. Broadly speaking, do these reorganisations go wrong in the same way that you see again and again as consultants, or do they go wrong in a way that is very specific to certain cultures? What we've found when we've looked at reorganisations that have gone wrong is there are some things that go wrong in a very common way across a lot of organisations. And the most common thing that goes wrong is that the leadership of the organisation haven't brought the people with them. So what they've done is they've announced the change, they've got very excited about it, they've started to implement it, and actually people don't really understand why the change is happening. And although they may look like they're going along with it, actually they're passively resistant to it. 
You've got a cartoon in your book which makes this point rather neatly. Why don't you describe it for us? That's right. One of the things we decided to do in doing this um, uh, book was rather than putting a large amount of PowerPoint in the book, which you might expect from two ex-consultants, we decided actually to put My some cartoons in. My sheer relief in. that you chose not to do that. <laughs> exactly. No, we decided to put some cartoons in to try and illustrate the point. Apart from anything else, having some cartoons is great when you're trying to communicate to people during a reorganisation. So we're hoping that they're going to be useful for people. But this one is actually my favourite cartoon. And what it has is it has a, a little man running along in a pinstripe suit and jumping over the final hurdle towards his reorganisation, which is up on a screen. Unbeknownst to him, on the other side of this hurdle is a very large pit. And at the bottom of the pit is a very nasty looking cat, or possibly it's a le- leopard or a, a lion or something. And that leopard is the management and the employees of the organisation who have not been brought along the journey with him. And although he thinks he's about to leap to the answer, what he's about to find is he's about to get eaten by the lion. And it's the most important thing to do. Stephen, that sounds like a quite dramatic description of a (laughs) a corporate reorganisation. But in your experience, how do you evolve getting eaten by the the giant cat or just your employees feeling that they're being missed out and becoming resentful and then less productive and less happy to work around? Um, So I think how you communicate and engage with your employees throughout the reorganisation is really important and for that reason, we devote a whole chapter of the book to uh, actually talking about it. Um, and the first thing, I mean, it goes to the success of the reorganization as a whole, not just the communication, is to be clear on why you're doing it. So actually, one of the common reasons for doing reorganizations is leaders just feel as if they want to imprint their impression on how the place is run, or they feel as if things just need shaking up because it's got a bit too stale. These are very bad reasons for reorganising, actually, because they're going to cause a lot of disruption. So, so it's bad to shake it up because things have got stale? I think so. Now, it is good to deliver some actual value, whether or not that's re- reduced costs or increased revenues by getting rid of some of this complexity that Suzanne talked about. Um, but just shaking it up kind of for the sake of it, and as, as we all know, as everyone listening will know, reorganisations cause disruption and upset. So it's good not to inflict that on your workforce unless you have a very good reason. Stephen and I have seen a number of occasions where particularly a new CEO has come into the organisation and really wants to stamp their mark on the organisation. So the first thing that they do is they reorganise. And that's what we're saying you should avoid. You should only reorganise if you're very, very clear what the purpose of the reorganisation is. To then pick up how you then communicate with employees. The fact is, is that no matter how excited you are, even if you've worked out what the benefit of this organisation is, it's going to increase your return on investment or whatever it does for you, your employees will not be happy to hear this news. They will not be as excited as you are. They'll just hear that I'm going to lose my job. So the important thing is that you are you communicate to them, you're clear on what you're doing. If there are going to be job losses, don't lie about it. Don't, don't pretend that they won't be. Be clear that they may be. Be clear with people when they're going to hear what it means for them. And it's only the point when you've actually decided what your new organisation is going to be and everyone has moved into their new roles, then you can excite them about the great new world. And so I think the two problems that we often see in how you communicate these things, first is you you, you just try and be all enthused and you just come across as un- uncaring <laughs> and divorced from reality. And the second is that you just don't communicate anything. And so you wait until you have the answer. That's the wait and see strategy exactly. that you discuss in, in the book. Indeed. And, and, and everyone thinks that theirs will be the first reorganisation where no one finds out that it's being done. 
and I can guarantee them that this will not be the case. By the next morning, this will be all around the water coolers that there's a team outside the CEO's office trying to reorganise the company. Is there an example, Suzanne, of a quite specific company problem that you thought gave, made, gave you pause or made you think, well, this is quite a difficult one to solve? It, it can be very, very difficult to solve a, a reorganisation in very, very, sometimes in very, very large organisations. It can be very hard because what happens is you come up with a solution that you feel works at an overall corporate level, and then the challenge is you've got to try and make that reorganisation work right out, in some in some cases across an entire global organisation. And there you have to be very, very thoughtful about creating not just the answer that works at the corporate centre, but actually creating a process and methodology which is going to enable people to implement it in New Zealand or Kuwait or wherever it might be. So that's quite a challenge. I also think that there are some organisations which have a very, very clear mission. So, for example, one of the executives who we spoke to was Elon Musk, and he talked about some of the reorganisations he's done. And I think in an organisation where everybody is very aligned around a very common purpose, as he has, actually people are very tolerant of change. In other organisations, it's much harder to motivate people to, to create change. And you've emphasised the importance of measuring goals, achievements, outputs. And we're in a, a world now in corporate life. We're much more measured than we were for I, good or real. I thought vi- we were in the post-fact world, are we not? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, some people say. But vital statistics are taken much more on, on outputs or everything to how many listeners you have for something like this, to you know, uh, what's your productivity and your yeah, how efficient you are compared to other departments. Do you find hard to offset that against things that can't be measured easily? And is there a danger of mistaking one for the other? I think there is, but I think in reorganisations, it actually goes too far the other way. We find that you can be dealing with a a very rigorous business person who in day-to-day life, where they're launching a a new product or a new piece in R&D, would absolutely define business metrics for it. But somehow when you come to reorganisations, people feel as if this is a sort of difficult, intangible, fluffy people process. And actually, in, in those kind of con- contexts, it's actually even more important to be clear about what you're doing and, and, and what the success will be. So there's little that can't be measured. If, if you're reorganising, if you're doing it because you want to reduce the costs or you want to gain revenues, then you should be clear about what the value of that actually is. So when you, when you start a reorganisation, we think it's very, very important to be clear about both the costs and the benefits of that reorganisation and to balance one against the other. Now, what you will find is that some of the elements of the cost and of the benefits are very hard to quantify. They're very hard to put a number against. They're qualitative numbers. So, for example, one of those is how much disruption you create for your employees and whether or not during the reorganisation they focus a lot less on delivering what you want your business to do because they're very distracted by what's going to happen in the reorganisation. Although it's very hard to put a number against that, that is a risk. Likewise, some of the benefits are going to be hard to quantify, but they're still important. There might be cultural benefits. You know, if you reorganise an organisation, you bring you break down silos so people can work together much better. That's going to create benefits. Can you both give me some concrete examples of companies or organisations or perhaps even governments that you think have reorganised well? So one example would be, I think for me, Walters Kluwer, which is a media company. What they do is they publish uh, books for lawyers, accountants and other professionals. And this was an organisation who, under their CEO, identified that to be successful, they needed to be a lot more global. They needed to do a lot more things 
on a global basis. So, for example, developing a lot of their IT support and some of their literature would be done much more globally. And that meant shifting quite a lot of the people who were regionally based into more global functions. So a very, very big shift and a very big shift of mindset from one to the other. Uh, but our observation looking at this uh, reorganisation was, first of all, they were very successful in making that happen. Uh, they were very successful in taking their employees with them. And then the other thing is uh, we know that they went back after, um, you know, about our... About, the other thing is we know that they went back about a year later and they corrected some of the things that didn't go right immediately. And and this is one of the things that we would emphasise in the book. It's very, very hard to do a reorganisation perfectly. Even the ones that we've seen that have gone well don't go perfectly well. And good CEOs will be open to the noise that happens at the end of a reorganisation and will go back and adjust things. And that certainly happened in that case. And Stephen, do you see the, the fruits of these labours pretty quickly in companies that you looked at? Um, I think I think you do. Where it's going well, you see the fruits. <laughs> Where it kind of drags on, people are depressed and you can't spot a difference, then you know it hasn't gone so well. What are the common mistakes? Well, the, the biggest mistake that I've seen in reorganisations is that the reorganisation is put in place, but actually people still pretend that it hasn't happened. It's actually remarkably easy to walk into work the day after a reorganisation and your boss's boss is now reporting to... A rather than to B. They used to report to Anne and now they report to uh, Bob. And actually, you don't change anything. You go in, you sit down at your desk, you pick up your papers and you do exactly what you did yesterday. And this is very common. And this is why a lot of reorganisations actually don't deliver what you expect, because for a lot of people in the organisation, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. The things that can change that is, first of all, structure is a lot, it's an enabler, but it's a lot less important than changing the processes and how people work. And it's a lot less important than changing the culture. And then the other thing is, you will sometimes find that some very, very senior people in the organisation will pay lip service to the change, but actually day to day, they'll behave just like they did yesterday. And one of the things that you can do to address that, and I've seen this happen a couple of times, is you can move some of those most recalcitrant managers into the you know into a very different role than the new structure. So I saw this in a big energy company where it used to be regionally structured and they moved it to a much more functional structure. A lot of the heads of regions were very resistant up until the point where they became functional heads and then suddenly their mindset changed overnight. How much does this apply to public sector organisations and how much is it really more relevant to businesses, Stephen? Well, this certainly does apply to the public sector as I know myself. I mean, I was working for the UK government as the Prime Minister's advisor on energy and environment. And, uh, and I lost my job in a big reorganisation called Brexit. So um, I guess I've been on the sharp end of this. We looked at the data. Suzanne mentioned a survey at the beginning of 1,800 uh, institutions. And we actually cut that data by public versus private sector as well. And it turns out that public sector reorganisations are about half as successful as private sector ones. So the numbers for private sector ones aren't that great and public sector is even more challenging. It's challenging there because it's it's often harder to be clear what your output is. So we're, we're saying that you should be clear what the benefits are, but in a private company, benefits tend to net out in money one way or another. In a public institution, if uh, you know uh, Obama was telling you to do it one way and then Trump tells you to do it another way, how are you going to measure that? And I think also the clock speed of public institutions as well is, is a lot slower than in the private sector. So this disruption that you see 
where people are not clear what it means for them tends to drag out a little bit more. And, and if you both had one piece of, of advice for prospective reorganisers when they get out their sheet of paper, if indeed anybody still gets out a, a sheet of paper or types the first line of, of their plan, what would it be, Suzanne? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would have is to involve people during your reorganisation. So the biggest mistake that people can make is to get the little team, the little team of five who are sitting outside your office to come up with some wonderful creative new idea and then land it on your organisation. And it almost never works because people don't accept the change and they're resistant to it. Uh, we've identified in the book a number of different ways in which you can involve people. Obviously, there are points at which you have to keep people, things confidential, but there are lots of opportunities to engage people and involve people. And organisations that do that are much, much more successful in getting the organisations reorganisations to work. Stephen, your tip? Treat a reorganisation like any other business challenge. Um, so it's easy to start reading about uh, operating models and reorganise like Google and the reporting lineless organisation and all this kind of stuff. Just treat it like a normal business process. Be clear on what it's supposed to deliver. Be clear on when you want it. Um, deal with things in, in terms of common sense. And actually, you won't go too far wrong. Um, one of the interesting things we found when writing the book was just that there wasn't a clear uh, guidebook for anyone on how to do this. So lots of people's opinions on like how you should organise. Well, of course, the reorganisation that's right for you is the one that suits your company. You can't just click copy-paste from another company, as, as you wouldn't do with your strategy. Stephen, Suzanne, thank you very much. And their book, Reorg, is out now. If you've any thoughts you'd like to share with us on what you'd like to see reorganised or not in your company, we're on Twitter at Economist Radio and on email, radio at economist.com. That is, unless Reorg gets to them too. In London, this is The Economist.